Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kirishanu Vimitzvotav Etzivanu Laasok Bedivrei Torah Vehaarevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divrei Torateka Befinu Ufiamka Beit Yisrael Veniyeh Anaknu Vetzetzeinu Vetzetzeiamka Beit Yisrael Kulanu Yodea Shemeka Vilomde Torateka Lishma Baruch Ata Adonai Hamlamet Torah Leamo Yisrael Amen. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, that a mishap not come about through me, and may I not stumble in a matter of law and cause my colleague to, to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to may that it is to whore, and not regard something which is to whore that it is to may. And may I not, and may my colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Mashiach now. Welcome to Rumination Study for Parsha Pinchas. We are in Bain HaMetrim, coming up on the first Shabbat of the three weeks. According to the Cephas Emes, it is important to note each Shabbat of this three weeks correspond to the Raglaim, the pilgrimage festivals, or in the words of Horeb, the Sheloshim, <laughs> known as the big three. So we have Pesach this week. Next week will be Shavuot. And then the week after that will be Sukkot, which will correspond with Shabbat Chazon, and then Tishbaav, and then we will be into Bezrat Hashem, the final Geula, if not anything else. But uh, <laughs> definitely looking forward to that because uh, Tuba'av is coming up, and then forty-five days later, Rosh Hashanah. So, uh, yeah, we're. We're like in the Zim Zoom right now. And then all of a sudden, it's just going to. Yeah. All right. That is interesting because this year, uh, Shabbat immediately precedes Tishba off. Coming right out of it. May our tears. Um, dilute the forces of judgment. Amen. So we have Rumination 39. This is kind of exchanging gears, a little different perspective. Um, if God has cut off unbelieving Israel, what hope has anyone? The one nation Hashem said they'll be with me forever. So if he cuts them off, it's just kind of like the aristically lay along. I mean, those are verses that are never looked at by theologians.
but then after this three-week period, we're, um, as a matter of fact, we'll be reading Parashat Devarim on the 8th of Av, which begins the seven-half Torah of comfort and consolation. Those are ignored. You know, when you cut out whole thirds of scripture or they don't survive the theologian's knife, so to speak. You know, you're just advocating a, a different religion apart from the master. You know, so can you truly, can you say with honesty that you are indeed his Talmud? If you keep advocating that, oh, the church is the new Israel. Which both of us know it's not the case. Because we have no hope if this, if he's cut off Israel, but we know he hasn't. It goes, against, it goes no. against his very character, who he is. That and he has to get rid of his tefillin. <laughs> yeah, you know, to put it on a tefillin, that immediately reminds you of his faithfulness. Because what, what, does, he, what does he do? He betrothes you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in justice, in kindness, yeah. forever. And forever is forever. <laughs> well, the other thing I was going to say, you know, Hashem wears tefillin too. And Chazal tell us that what does Hashem's parchments and his tefillin say? They say there is no nation like Israel. Yeah, Exodus 19, we shall be a peculiar people, segula, a treasured people. Yeah. So, you know, we, we would be wrapping tefillin and basically lying to ourselves if Hashem cut us off. And Hashem would just, like, why would you even do that? Why would you even wear tefillin? Why would you even have the parchments in your tefillin that say that about such nation that you want to cut off? And don't, don't we recall last week's Torah portion, even though it was split up this year, normally it's together, namely Hukad and Balak, where Hashem was like, did you just call my children rebels? You you, you want to speak in, up into the mic? You know, like, <laughs> I'm just saying, who said that? You know, Moshe Rabbeinu. And Hashem was like, hold the clouds. You know, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I ain't on Moshe's level. <laughs> it didn't work for him. So how do we think it's going to work for us? That is ironic because I was reading from the Rambam on uh, in Kitisa, and he explicitly recalls Moshe's statement to Israel, you rebels, in reference to the sin of the golden calf. Did he cut off Israel that day? Hmm. No. See, this is the problem with theology, theological systems. You know, you're basically cherry-picking. You're just picking out the verses that agree with your theology. 
ignoring the others. You know, it's like you're saying that Hashem's a bait and switch artist, you know. You're doing what the spies did, accusing him of lying. So who has the greater sin here? I wonder. Yeah. You know, statements like that make me think of this thing called trunk or treat or fall festivals. This bait and switch tactic that's actually used to say, hey, we're not going to celebrate this Halloween thing. We're just going to, you know, we're going to dress up. We're not going to dress like ghouls but i mean if you get close to that that's fine and we're gonna we're gonna use this as a time to evangelize you know and it's just like you can't evangelize to people while you're like totally nullifying your witness you know it's just kind of like that would be yeah i'm not gonna say that (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, should yeah, we should be careful. <laughs> yep. I'm out. <laughs> you don't want to be like Loki. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> you know there's that part in the first Avengers movie where he's like and was it there in Europe, right? Yeah. And he and he surrounds him with holographic images, right? These people. Yeah. And he's like, bow. And he, and he throws down, he, he he like plunges his staff into the sidewalk and says, Bow before me. Everyone bows except one person. Mm-hmm. And this guy's a Jew with a number tattooed on his arm, a Holocaust survivor. I didn't catch that. Get I caught some. that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Good night, man. This guy's not gonna bow because he knows he's a, a fake. Yeah. Yep. You know, then old Cap shows up. Mm-hmm. The last guy that said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So yeah, I you know it's. I'm, you know, it's like what you mentioned last week about, you know, evangelizing. When people, when they go knocking on your door and say, well, do you have Jesus as your personal savior to, like, really just throw you back? That you're, like, you're taken aback by it? Make you feel insecure? You know, it, it's that guilt trip. It's like saying, you bow to our God, you know? And why would any Jew do this, you know, who's observant? Why? Shaul certainly did not. You know, Acts chapter 9 should tell you a lot, you know, that he did not turn from from Judaism. He did not turn from Gamaliel. Right. A lot of those mystical teachings he shared, where do you think he got them from? That's the other reason why he's so misunderstood. And Peter knew that. And he warned against it. This is why in Kabbalah, you know, um, the teacher only takes on one student. 
because you can't risk it being corrupted. Wow. Which unfortunately you see today. Um, you know, the Arizal is another good example. He only had one primary disciple, and that was the Rabbi Shaim Bito. Yes. And look what he wrote. Yeah. He's wrote numerous works on based on Luronic Kabbalah, which is how you know the Arizal organized Kabbalah in his day, which made it a lot more accessible and easier to understand. You know, by someone like you and me, for example, you know, if we're really serious about it and we take time yeah. to learn the terminology. But again, those things are like gatekeepers, you know, stopping those who are unlearned from corrupting the teachings of the rabbis. You know, that's what the Agada is there for, you know. And unless you're familiar with those terms, you know, you're just going to come up with it as you go along, you know. That's yeah. why to me, uh, nothing in Christian theology really made any sense to me because I was reading my Bible and this stuff didn't line up and I'm supposed to take your word for it. When even the master himself said, search the scriptures for them, you'll find that they testify of me. Yeah. And if you don't believe Moses, then how will you believe what I say? For he wrote about me. So that's kind of an interesting statement since getting rid of Moshe is the, the thing to do today. In mm -hmm. lieu of uh, proclaiming this Messiah character. And the reason I say this Messiah character is because based off of what was stated by messiah he said if you don't believe moshe how can you believe me so therefore if you don't believe moshe you don't do moshe then who in the world are you proclaiming <laughs> exactly it's you're advocating another religion not the one that the master came to maintain yeah you're going to get yeah, otherwise he wouldn't be a Zadik. That's awkward. You know, you wouldn't be a pious one, you know. Um. You know, one, one more thing to the question here. One of the things I always think about is put yourself in the mind of the Messiah and say, would he say something like this would he say unbelieving israel would he say israel has been cut off you know what's his perspective of that you know because so many times we we want to or people want to listen to paul or you know somebody else you know like a macarthur some kind of commentary like that and it's just kind of like, you ever think about what the master's words are? Yep. And Shaul said that this might be in you that was in Mashiach. He always pointed back to Mashiach. He always pointed back to the Torah. 
as well at the same time. Basically, what he was doing was connecting his own words and that of the master back to the Torah. Because, again, this is something I've said before, and it bears repeating, is that what objective source do you have to measure your actions by or to live by? This is why the rabbis stress it. If you don't believe the Torah is divine, then you're a heretic. Mm. It's one of the 13 principles of Judaism. You must believe that the Torah is divine. The sages never say that you have to believe what we say. There's a dichotomy right there for you. Right. What do the pastors do? Oh, you got to take my word for say. it. Yeah. And what, oh, see, here we go with Matthew 23. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. For they say and do not. That's a serious indictment, you know? Because he's confronting hypocrisy, not... Um, and also a very tight-knit group of uh, parashim. Not the whole of Pharisaic Judaism in the first century, but them specifically. This is what is missed by those who read the Gospels. Is they don't see this. Right. And so the theologians think that, okay, this, the whole batch is bad. One apple rotten's the whole bunch. No. That's, this is not the case. You know, it would be uh, your method of study would, is flawed in those cases because you're not mm-hmm. thinking of the historicity of the first century. Um, You know, another example to bolster that argument would be the Zedekim, the Sadducees, who were sola scriptura or hyperliteral interpretation of the Torah, which they descended from the Essenes who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls because they held this position. And so from the Zedekim, you have the Karaites, same thing, hyper-literal interpretation of the Torah, and then that has um, survived to our day to certain aspects of of the Messianic movement, in particular the Hebrew Roots movement. Wow. So this is why it's important, you know, to understand and study the historicity and see its progression down through the centuries and how it manifests itself. And Yeshua directly confronted this manifestation that was false or false teachings. He wasn't saying that the Parashim's teachings were false. It's just that they weren't doing what they were supposed to do following Halakha of the day and this is in spite of the fact that the Mishnah wasn't fully wasn't canonized yet yep, a couple hundred years to go yeah. yeah exactly so Yeshua was bolstering or sticking with the sages he didn't depart from the, their words because you know in the gospels you see 
and you heard that it was said. And then he says, but I say to you. Right there, he's giving Talmudic dictums. Basically offering his position on a matter of halakha and various gemaras in, in the Mishnah. Yeah, because everything was oral back then. Like, there was no reason to write it down. Like, it was only written down because it, it came to a state of emergency, you know, for fear of it being lost. So when you really think about it, you know, everything that he was quoting, you know, it was just kind of like, this is what's learned and, and taught, you know, as, as you're raised up in a Jewish environment. There were no churches, you know, which if you even just think about that one aspect alone, That's a very important point you just brought out. There were no churches. No Christians. They were just believers in the master. I mean, how direct. Yeah, like Paul's letters weren't written yet. Exactly. He, he was still composing them when he was in, in prison in Rome. That's where he wrote most of the majority of his letters was from yeah. Rome. And they went forth to the various places that he visited during his three mission during his three trips in Asia Minor. Yeah. You know, what was he doing on these three trips? He was getting the lay of the land. That's what he was doing. He was finding out what was going on in these various uh, kahila. Because mm -hmm. each one had its problems, just like the problems you're dealing with in your kahila. You're getting the lay of the land. You're determining what needs to be done. You know, if, if you were to write a letter, so to speak, this is what you would need to do. You need to get the lay of the land. You need to find out, get the, get the intelligence that you need to take appropriate action. And this is exactly what Shaul did. He, real, he found out what was going on. And he wrote letters, said, look, this is how it's supposed to be, and this is what you're doing. He was taking their actions and comparing them to the Torah and then writing a letter saying, look, this is what you need to, you need to get it together. This is what you're lacking. This is where you're falling short in your works. And it's okay to judge people based on their works because otherwise, you know, it's correction. You got to be willing to accept correction. You got to be teachable. If you're not teachable, you're not going to learn anything. You're not going to grow. You know, this is what Shaul was dealing with, you know, and, and Yeshua, same thing. And all in every place he visited, he primarily sat down with the yeah. multitudes and, and he taught them. Because Israel in the first, especially the first century, especially in the days that the master had this exile mentality. They were subservient to Rome. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. You know, it's, I would say that um, throughout the Tanakh, if you read carefully enough, and this is why the narrative of redemption is so important, because it underlines the, the spiritual condition of Israel in that thousand years after the events that took place in the Torah. So from going from Yehoshua all the way to Divrei Hayamim, 
you have this, the spiritual condition. You know, and this week's Parsha and Pincus does speak to this, the spiritual condition of Israel at the time when he took action. Right. And acted in Hashem's zeal, not his own. But what do you see Christianity doing? Um, to read the first paragraph from the rumination, Christianity has a popular myth that says that God gave Israel one last chance when Jesus presented himself as the Messiah. And through the statement, his blood be on us and on our children. That's a blood libel. Absolutely. They forever remove themselves from the choice seat of God's favor. Okay, so I'll be quoting Matthew 23, verse 2, right about now. And the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moshe's seat. Of course, this heresy became the starting point of Christianity's long and ugly history of anti-Semitism. Most Christian adherents don't want to hear this. I've even confronted a few with this truth. And they just simply could not stomach it. They could not. Um, they're just simply not in a place to hear it. Yeah. Most pastors aren't. It's a conflict of interest. Basically, it would mean possibly losing your whole congregation. Definitely being out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything that you spent your life learning, you have to unlearn. That is not easy. I got to start when I was late 20s about 25 26 was when i was able to be like or when i was shown actually but after i was shown i had to make a choice i had to make the choice to be like listen so you have about because i started when i was seven at that point so a little over a decade and a half like you have over that amount of time you know that everything that you think you know or you thought you knew uh that's got to go away now <laughs> you know and as as a person in their late 20s that's a lot easier than a person who's in their late 50s or 60s you know especially if you're a pastor and this is supposed to be your thing <laughs> well yeah if your bread and butter is putting people in those pews getting yeah. those tithes and offerings yes that would be a very difficult thing indeed to give up. But then again, if you're truly honest and objective about your faith, it should be about discipleship, not about money. Yeah. Because be that is, in, in the Jewish sense, that's bad parnasa. Were you honest in your business dealings? Wow. I, was I think Dora Miller gets into the get, was getting into this in the commentary I'm reading this week from him, and he doesn't spare. Uh, Avic Dora Miller. Oh yes, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I have it up as a matter of fact. Um, I was seeing the rich young ruler, the, you know, yeah. you're going to sell everything oh, yeah. and come after me. <laughs> uh, yeah, he talks about the one minute Baal Teshuvah. Even one minute is something. If you're serious about it, then even in one minute, you can become a Baal Teshuvah. Like when they write a get, the Rav, who is a Maseder, the get brings in two kosher Jews and they have to be a deem, witnesses. And before they start, he tells them, be ma, be uh, ma, her, har, teshuva. That's what the Rav tells the two Edim. Think about doing Teshuva for a minute. Now, the Edim didn't have a Seret, Yemei Teshuva. They didn't have Elul. So what's going on here? Is it serious business to do Teshuva? It is one minute before they read and sign the get, they'll be able to become Baal Teshuva? The answer is yes, certainly. And the Hopetz Kaim added, he said that they'll do it even for just a couple of dollars. That's how it was. And the Edim were paid. That's why they're doing it. For a few dollars, they'll do a Teshuva? And it's still something. It's such a something that they're kosher edim now. And so you see that in one minute, a person can become very great. In five minutes, even greater. Imagine what dedicating one day every month can do for a person's stature in the next world. He's talking about Rosh Hodesh. See, questions and progress. Did I make progress in uh, Bain Adam La Mokom the past month? What happened to my tefillah? What about my learning? How did I behave when it came to my obligation to give tzedakah? How did I use my shabbosim this month? Did I spend at least a few minutes at each tzedua thinking about what Shabbos is trying to teach me? What about HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Did I think about him enough? That's a question you probably haven't asked yourself. Most people forget about that question even when Yom Kippur comes. Did I accomplish a Bain Adam La Cavero? Did I wrong my fellow man? Did I make mistakes in dealing with my neighbors? Also, how did I behave to people on the street? How was my behavior between me and the members of my family? How did I speak to my wife or my husband this month? Did I say something I shouldn't have on the first day of the month that just passed? What about the second day and the third day? Think about the wrong things you said, the wrong way you reacted. Now I don't know, now you don't, now I know you don't do it. That's why it's a good thing that you came here tonight. I'm talking to myself too. It's easy to say, but it's not hard to do. Only you have to know that this was what Rosh Hodesh is for. You have to utilize this special day that the Bore gave to us. You know, and he, and he goes on, you know. But the one thing that stood out, you know, were you honest in your business dealings? Yeah. Well, the whole thing that you just shared is straight Musar. Like, <laughs> I know. You could just like play this video back and just be like, and stop. Say la. Okay. Play. Stop. You know, like, and I love the ending. He calls him Habore. Is that what, is that what it said? The creator? Uh huh. 
I've been trying to pick up on uh, titles that uh, teachers refer to Hashem as, you know, my rabbi, he calls him Ribbono Sha'olam. Uh, master of the world. Yeah, I, I told him, I was just like, so one of the things that I really appreciated, because there was a few weeks ago, uh, there was uh, a Zoom he was doing and he taught like he was going and then he was like okay and i'm gonna stop the recorder and he was like and i was not recording you know and he goes ribono shalom you know and like that was it you know and it was just like he didn't lose it he didn't like throw a fit i was just like so out of everything you just taught that right there was the teaching moment <laughs> you know because you, you show me anybody who brings insights and then show me a person who can handle adversity or, or disappointment, you know? And, and yeah, that's basically that. what you, what you shared from a big door Miller, you know, it's just kind of like, what about the real deal stuff? Yeah. He's the, when it comes to that, yeah, it's the real deal. You know, it's the nuts and bolts, you know, it's the steak. We concentrate on not the peas and the potatoes. Ooh. Nice. Um, but, yeah, then I was reading the Torah Wellsprings um, where he talks about, let's see, it's on page 27. Yeah, I mean, he talks about Bain HaMitzurim. Actually, I posted this in the group. Um you know, the Gemara says when a person is brought in heaven to judgment, he's asked, did you deal honestly in business? This is where I got that from. Okay. Uh, did you have set times for Torah study? Did you have children? Did you await the salvation? You know how in Christianity, oh, Jesus is my personal savior. But we're talking a Torah principle here. Because Hashem is our salvation. Uh, I Yeshua Al Amka. Yeah. <laughs> Every Havdalah. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, and again, I would say uh, those people listed in Hebrews 11, are you seriously going to tell me that they're going to hell? that they don't have a place in the world to come when in fact that they do. I wouldn't want to be in the judge seat on that. <laughs> you know, by doing that, you place yourself in the crosshairs of judgment and strict Gavura because of your simplistic statement. That's what I would say. You mean because, like uh, in other words, meta connected meta, measure for measure, what you say will come upon you. You'll be judged by your own words. Yeah. Remember the master's words? Exactly. By your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. He's talking measure for measure there. Yeah. I was just gonna say the, the earthly court. They're supposed to look for ways to exonerate people, to 
to grant them clearance. You know, if you just go into the court and you sit down in your judgment seat, which, by the way, according to Bahaturim, says a sword hangs above your head, the pit of Gehenna is open beneath you. So you just operate in a <laughs> in a smart way, Judge. <laughs> but anyway, but it's just kind of like, so if you just show up in there and be like, oh, he's guilty, get him out of here. It's just like, you're not going to look into his case? You're not going to look at the dynamics, the intricacies of his life. Because that's what Hashem does with us. Yeah. And if you're not willing to do that, then Hashem's not going to look at you in that manner. He'll just simply say, depart from me, you who are Torahlessness. Yeah. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think it just goes to say, just to echo last week's episode, this is why we cannot and we do not tell people whether or not they're going to hell. Like, we don't we don't get to say that, you know, because people get uncomfortable when they see you doing things and they're like, oh, so what? I'm, I'm guilty. I'm going to get hit them. You're like whoa (laughs) why would you knock on somebody's door when you say you're going out evangelizing you know knock knock you know do you have jesus as your personal savior because if you don't you're going to hell we don't do you understand how offensive that really is and why and people have a right to be offended by that are you really telling me that i'm a totally bad person that I have no merits at all, that the good that I do in this world when I go to my job every day and I provide for my family and keep a roof over their head and bring the food home and everything that my wife does around the house, raising the kids, cooking the meals, keeping the house clean, doing the laundry, all that doesn't merit a place in the world to come. Wow. Taking away people's alam haba just because of your personal preference. Yikes. You know, that it's, it's ridiculous to think that. We don't get to judge other people's emunah. Under no circumstances do we have that authority. Meaning, as you pointed out, we can't sit there and tell someone they're going to hell. We don't have that authority. That's not been given to us. That alone belongs to Hashem. As I pointed out last week, and to echo my statement from last week, Hashem has the power to make alive that which is dead. Would you know what that means? The he very reserves Israel. He brings look at Israel the last two thousand years, and what Shaul says in Romans eleven. He brings Israel back, and he has. May 1948. You know, theologians must be panicking at that time. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> tripping over your tongue. Yep. 
life from the dead. That's what those are Shaul's words in Romans 11. Now, isn't it true that these people weren't really Orthodox who were really working to establish the state of Israel? Yeah, that's the other interesting thing is you're touching on the Arab Rav. And you know, Zionism, that's, that's I've been hearing, this is the thing, this is what I've been hearing and studying. Rabbi Alana Nava over at Otsmoop points this out that those who are Zionist, pro-Zionist, are against the Torah and against those who keep the Torah, those who observe the Torah, those who live by the Torah. Why? Because these people are politicians. And Israel is mimicking, I think, predominantly our country, country's political system. Mm. And this is what's getting them into so much trouble. Is the heir of Rob. They're listening to the rabble when they should be listening to Moshe. He, Alana Nava points this out quite well, you know, and finally someone who brings this out and speaks it out and calls it out for what it is. I mean. Because this is not bringing Kedusha down from the heavenly at all. It's causing all kinds of problems. But, you know, this is, you know, they're robbed. They're, they, they pushed, they almost, they, I think they've quite literally pushed Israel into the sin of the golden calf. They had an influencing factor in that. You know, we had this for 2,000 years with uh, Christianity, the theological system. Um, um you know, to be sure, many evangelical Christians reject this foundational theology of the early church fathers. However, that theology continues to openly burst to the surface, even among the most Zionist of Christians. When discussions of the continuity of the Torah or Jewish identity are promoted. Uh oh. See, this is where we run into this problem with the Arab Rav. You have two competing forces vying for control of Eretz Yisrael, but they forget one thing. If we go back to uh, 1 Samuel, when the tribes clamored Shmuel for a king because they wanted to be like other nations. And Shmuel's response was, we are not like other nations, for Hashem is both our God and our king. I mean, but Hashem tells Shmuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And this, and since that time to the present, this problem has existed. Mimicking. You know, they're behaving like the nations. 
you know, and Hashem has repeatedly told Israel, you're not like other nations, you're my treasure. You're my people. You know, the priesthood's inheritance is Hashem. Not the land. And so it brings us to the question, you know, what is unbelieving Israel anyway? Yeah, it's a great question to ask. Side note on mimicking. The literal definition says, especially in order to entertain or ridicule. That's the, the essence of mimicking, of imitating others and copying. Is for entertainment and ridicule. Boy, what do we see coming out of Hollywood nowadays? <laughs> In the TV stations. Okay. In the three weeks of Bain Hamid Surin, between the narrows or troubles, we are reminded of the pervasiveness of unbelief. I mean, forget about all the other sins that are committed. Unbelief. I tend to put that one at the top of the list along with Lashon Har. Part of why we're still in exile is because we are not allowing ourselves to believe in the redemption. Like, remember the spies show back up and we're like, yeah, we don't think Hashem can take the giants. And matter of fact, we don't just think it. We know that. Unbelief. We're grasshoppers in their sight. <laughs> really? Who told you that? Who told you you were grasshoppers? Did you forget that I've called the land good? Even Moshe forgot that. Remember Shalak Lakad, the rumination for that? And how Moshe yeah. got swept away in that false narrative? Yes. This narrative continues today. Look what Israel is doing today. They're being swept away in this narrative of this supposed two-state solution. They're even thinking that. And now what do you got in the Knesset? The Islamic Brotherhood? A political party? Are you kidding me? But then again, I sh should not be surprised. None of us should be. Because right. this is exactly what the master said would be, along with the prophets. So, who's willing church, to stand? You know, and the church has fallen into this narrative big time. You know, they're practically saying too that Hashem is a is a liar, that he's not faithful. 
I would not want to be the one to answer for that. Yeah. You know? I mean, it kind of reinforced the point of your, your testimony and how you were coming into Torah. Um, you know, like my wife and I, we, we began to simply question. It doesn't make any sense that we celebrate his death on a Friday and that he rose on Sunday. That doesn't make any sense. How, were you getting three days out of that, just out of common sense? You know? Mm -hmm. And then you really don't know that he was born on... We know definitely that he was never born on December 25th. That's Saturnalia. We know who was born on December 25th. The sages deal with it in this tractate, by the way. <laughs> now vote <is> Zara. <laughs> yeah. You know. So... Yeah, we just simply question. And we're the only two that were, you know. And pretty soon, you know, Hashem started giving us the answers we were looking for. Some I've had on the shelf, spiritually speaking, for quite a while. I'm just waiting patiently for the answers to come when I'm ready for them. That's a big part yeah, but, of it. Yeah. While everyone else, you know, just sitting there and just not searching the scriptures for themselves. Even the Bible studies I used to attend at this particular congregation, you know, I would ask questions. I would make comments based on what I was learning. You know, and I was very subtle about it, too. I was, like, challenging him and his understanding, the pastor. You know, this is in front of other people, and they weren't picking up on it. Very selective in my words, because I wanted to see where he was at. Because right. obviously, he wasn't where I was. You know, and shortly before we moved to Minnesota, you know, one of the last services we attended there, you know, I told him the about the dangers of replacement theology. You know, and he was quiet, not, not a word. Really? Yeah. I'm thinking, you know. And then, you know, not long after we moved here, you know, I... I watched him talk. Uh, he delivered a message because he got the book, The Sabbath, by Abraham Joshua Heschel, mm -hmm. who came out of the steppes of Eastern Europe, by the way. He escaped the Holocaust. Wow. What was coming. And he's read that book. And yet he gets behind the pulpit and he delivers an anti-Semitic message saying that Jesus is our Sabbath. You know, he fulfilled the law. You know, I'm like, <laughs> okay, are, do you even bother going to Luke 4.16 and where it says on, on the Shabbat, he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom, 
in complete obedience to the Torah? Yeah, but just using that as that's his observance. And because he's observant, I don't have to be. That, that just is, missed. See, do you see how it misses the point entirely, though? Yeah. You know, you're 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 hiding behind him and his merit and not meriting anything for yourself. Because in Deuteronomy 6.25, the, the pursuit clearly states, and it will be righteousness for you if you are careful to observe all that I have commanded you. Where else do you see that kind of words, wordage? Matthew 28, 19, and to observe all that I have commanded you. Kazara Shabbat. Yep. That's what we're supposed to be doing for the nations. Teaching them. Yeah, exactly. Making disciples for the master. Teaching them to do what you and I are doing. And it should be leading by example primarily. But we still need to tell them verbally and teach them verbally and show them in the Torah and the various commentaries to give deeper insight, you know, so that their understanding, their appreciation, their emunah would be deepened along with their trust. But to get up and deliver a message like that, that it contradicts the Torah, you're, you're just leading people astray. And Hashem's going to hold you accountable for that. See, this is, the, this is why the spirit of Korach is alive and well today, because you have these kind of men who are leading disciples after themselves, rather than leading them to Hashem and his Torah. That's your Rob Dessler point from Parsha Korah. Yes. <laughs> Which, by the way, I got to share that on the Bain Hamaitzrim day five. I actually so, listened to that, and I thank you for the shameless plug. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was saying that to myself. <laughs> considering when you read it, I was like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Man, let's put the brakes on. Yeah, well, I have a bookmark for this week, so. <laughs> oh, you do? Yep. <laughs> Bezerat to Shem, I'm buying that with my next paycheck. So, <laughs> oh. it's just time. It's time to make it happen. Yeah. Time to merit that Mashiach comes. Yes. You know, I, that's the impression that I've. It's been made on me. You know, we, we can't be spiritually lazy and be dependent on the, the golden parachute. You know, we got to let him be seen in us. You know, this collective consciousness, if you will. You know, because the rabbis talk about it. It, it, it is a Torah principle though not directly mentioned because 
in the lives of all those who walked in the way of Hashem, we see their merit. And we can look to that as an example. See, that's the thing. That whole sermon I was just telling you about misses that point. Because that they did it. How can Mashiach be any different than that? And still be considered in the office of Mashiach and be qualified to occupy the office of Mashiach. And I speak of it more in an earthly sense, you know, like a, a president. You know, one of the requirements to run for president in this country is you have to be 35 and you have to be naturally born citizen. Well, look at Mashiach. He's of the lineage of David Melech. You know? He would, he would help to bring the restoration of the fallen sukkah of David. Among other things, you know. Yeah, just a few. Um, you know, what's interesting is another place in the gospel that is often used as a replacement or attempted use of it is this lament in Matthew 23 when he says, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered you under my wing like a chicken gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate and you shall not see me again until you cry, Baruch Hashem Adonai. And I'll give the shameless plug to Yosef because he brought that up one time. Cool. When will Mashiach come in our day if we cry out? You mean like three weeks of mourning cry out? <laughs> hey, it's an appropriate time. I mean, if anybody's going to I mean, we're cry. mourning the golden calf and the destruction of both temples, aren't we? And the sin and the spies, right? You know, is Raquel crying over this? Is she crying over the diaspora, the 2,000-year the exile? Is she crying out because no one has the consciousness of redemption and Mashiach? You know, the Pasuk says, you know, she's crying for her children. I would, and I'm reminded of the Shema, and you shall teach these things diligently to your children throughout all your generations? Are those the children that she's weeping for? Is she embittered by the fact that they're not crying out in unison for Mashiach, for redemption? To quote the right? Because he gave us the Kabbalistic understanding of the four worlds, levels of soul, 
what's the highest level of soul of every human being? Uh, Yakita. That what which, is, which is in oh. which is unified with the orange so of the divine light. Yeah, and you know what the level of Yakita is also known as the spark of Mashiach within every individual. Which is the higher levels of our consciousness bringing that all together. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, to add to that, I think of Moshe. The Gematria for Korok's name is 308, while Hevel is 37. And Moshe rectified the 37 good sparks because when Hevel gave birth to him, she said, behold, he is good. Ooh. And because Mashiach is the prophet like Moshe, he too is good. Because he rectifies all the sparks, the good sparks. And brings them from the Klippot to the Klippot. That's why he's at the gates of Rome. He's extracted yeah. those sparks. Because he's, yeah, he's bringing all those sparks that are trapped in the Klippot of Esau over to the Klippot. This is why he says, my sheep know my voice. And they follow me. <laughs> and they don't follow a stranger. So in other words, the, the taunting or the ridicule or the hubris of the pastors that pull you away from the words of Torah. Those words are just in one ear and out the other, not even in the ear, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, that's, that's encouraging, you know, because I always think about the people who are still in church. There are sparks. There's still sparks there. You know, and they're going to come out. We came out. Yeah. And I've been given many opportunities. So when we had to go for my sister's uh, memorial, and I had the opportunity to recite Mourner's Kaddish, and I got to share some Torah with those who wanted to listen. Because um, um, they were kind of, they're giving, this couple was giving their Sunday school lesson. And at one point, I posed a question to them because they're talking about when Shaul went to the witch at Endor and he wanted her to bring uh, Shmuel back from the grave, which is forbidden. You're violating right. a negative commandment in regards to that. But there's also another negative commandment that he violated in doing that. Is that he used the name. I put that question to them. And to the rest of the congregation there. What commandment did Shaul violate when asking the witch to bring back Shmuel from the dead? 
And you shall not take the name of Hashem in vain. He was using it for a mundane purposes because you went to a witch, which witchcraft is forbidden. You're not to consult with those kind of people. So in other words, the purpose and the intent of the divine name, not only was it being taken out of context, but the power of that name was being rerouted to the Citra Akli. Yeah, the other side, exactly. Huh. And the witch was in, was in the Citra Akra. So you got Hashem's name and Hashem's servant. Both being like pulled to the side of not Kedusha. And what, what's interesting is what are the Shemuel remind Shaul of? The kingdom has been torn from you. So why are you consulting me again when I'm dead? You know, it's Yeah, you were quoting uh, Matthew 23, 37 through 39 for those who were interested in the source. Okay, to continue. Yeah, we're reminded, of, we're reminded of the pervasiveness of unbelief in all the descendants of Adam. In these three weeks, we are mourning our sins. The book in sins of the golden calf and the ten spies speak forebodingly of the sin of unbelief. It is a sin that we mourn of during these three weeks. It is a sin we mourn for all of our lives. The truly humble remember that without Hashem's favor, we would all remain eternally in unbelief. What our ancestors did in the wilderness does not set them apart from us today. Their sin was and is our sin. 100%. This is the whole thing individually being brought into a community. We're not, we're not by ourselves. We're not islands here. <laughs> no. Yeah, spiritual arrogance is a frightful thing. It's the source of curses. Oh, that's a small thing. Takes us back to last week's bar shot. <laughs> um, Why would anyone want to be cursed? Yeah. It led early church fathers to deride the Jew as a Christ killer and unbeliever. You know, the point I was making earlier about 
and as well and you as well about we don't have the authority to judge someone's not or to tell them that they're condemned. Simply no. It continues to lead otherwise gracious people to annul the Torah for too many reasons instead of revering it for the very reason which speaks to the issue of humility and combating spiritual arrogance. We are simply Hashem's people redeemed by his outstretched arm and we simply obey every word that comes from his mouth because we love him. I'm thinking of Pincus's zeal, but also of Eliyahu as well, because Eliyahu is the Gilgul of, of Pincus. Um, It was, there was uh, something I was reading. Oh, man. I believe it was the Zohar, the Pritzker edition, that says Eliyahu is going to return with the disembodied Moshe. Because Moshe is going to have to return because he has to return in every generation to Tikkun for everything in the wilderness. And so this is all connected to appointing Yehoshua as a leader and moving the people forward. So the whole thing with Eliyahu and, and Pincus and, and the zeal and moving everybody forward because this was stemmed by the discussion Rabbi Foreman brought down from Aleph Beta with uh, the connection to, no, 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 no. This was stemmed by uh, Shavile Pincus with the connection to Eliyahu and, uh, and Pincus uh, having the zeal, but on different levels. Because Pincus' zeal was due to the sexual sin that people were doing to have the plague and he stopped the plague and things like that. Eliyahu had the prophets of Baal and, you know, all of that. And then the, the queen who was killing all the prophets. And so he was acting in that level of uh, zeal. So there was like this matching zealousness. And so the whole thing about the zeal like perpetuating and continuing is the Pincus to Eliyahu connection. So then with that being that particular point, connecting that to uh, Moshe coming back in every generation to speak forth the Torah of Hashem, but he has to have Eliyahu uh, interpret for him because it's, it's like, he still has to have, you know, the, the bridge between his words and the people. So just, uh, that was just a, a drop that that made me think about when you talk about, um, you talk about this point here. 
but it, it just goes to the point that makes spiritual arrogance and zealousness like there there is a there is a difference because it gets mistaken a lot yeah um I just brought up the PDF from Aleph Beta on Pincus. Um, because one, there's, <clears throat> we need to look at one word in here. All right. There with you. Um, yeah. <clears throat> when we look at Elijah, in 1 Kings 19.14, we see kana, kanati, lakava. But with pinkus, we see be kanao et kinati. Now, in both those verses, the spelling is identical except different the vowelization is different we have a uh, in pinkas we have the kirik under the kuf the shva on the noon the kamats katan on the aleph the kirik on the top while with eliyahu we have the we have the kirik under the the kuf but we have the uh, the holem, the the long e sound on the noon, and then the kirik on the on the top, which is the i sound i sound. <clears throat> In pinkas, the context of the verse is that pinkas acted in the zeal of Hashem. Because Hashem says he acted in my zeal, not his own. But with Eliyahu, he's saying, I have been zealous. But what we need to do here is we need to look at, okay, who else was zealous? Right. Okay. But before I go on, I want to do what Rabbi Foreman did, is that he wanted to give us a modern-day parental metaphor, a real-life parental metaphor as a template for this. <clears throat> when your son does something really grievous, and as a father, you know, you become angry because it is really wrong what he did, and he needs to know this. However, you know, your wife, you know, the mother steps in and says, you know, you don't want him to be afraid of you. So I will go in. But the mother understands that when she goes in, she has to show the same kind of anger that the father would. Otherwise, the father will wind up having to go back in there and do this anyway. So what we have here is we have Pincus running Cosby and Zimri through with the spear. 
But what what was what happened before this? What did the Hashem say before Pincus even did this? What was Hashem going to do? It was the same thing that he was going to do with the sin of the golden calf. He was going to wipe them out. Because before Pincus picked up his spear, 24,000 already died. Divine judgment was already happening. The same with the golden calf. 3,000 died that day. Divine judgment. They were being dealt with by Hashem himself. Divine anger. Can you honestly be spiritually arrogant in the face of divine anger? Emphatically, no. So now we have Pincus, who acted in Hashem's zeal, not his own, not what he perceived to be zealousness. But with Eliyahu, we see differently because he's been dealing with Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel, who were killing the prophets to the point where Eliyahu says, hey, I'm the only one left. And Hashem tells him, uh, no, I got 750, buddy, that haven't bowed the knee to the Baal. Which, by the way, that ties to the Matthew 23 that you shared. Yeah. Who kills it the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Yeah. Shabbat. Yeah, nice. <laughs> you know, and so who else is shows zeal? Moshe. He's at Sinai. He's receiving the Torah. The Aseret Devarim being written with the finger of Hashem on the Shnei Lukot. And Hashem tells him, you know, get down. The people that you brought have corrupted themselves. So Moshe heads down and he sees it and he becomes angry. Woe to you, Israel. You have sinned a great sin. And I'm going Charlton Heston here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille here. <laughs> um, you've, woe to you, you've sinned a great sin. And he smashes the tablets. What's more, why, everyone says he shouldn't have done that. But I submit to you that it was necessary. Because Moshe was showing divine anger, anger that would not have destroyed Israel. Because after this, he what does he do? He goes back up for another 40 days and he pleads. This is what he says in Exodus 32. And perhaps Hashem will forgive you. And he does, though not entirely. Because 3,000 died that day.
you know, this is why I, I took a pic of the Rambam because I was studying this and I posted it in the group. Uh, was it uh, yesterday or the day before? And I was telling Yosef about it. That Moshe showing divine anger was a necessity to spare Israel absolute destruction because Hashem was that close to wiping them all out. Because he said, I'll make a nation of you. But Moshe says, no, don't be angry. It's like he's saying, I will be angry for you. And when I learned this, and I realized how beautiful this is, this is what Mashiach does for us. You know what he in Matthew 23 when he rebukes the Pharisees, he's showing divine anger, which otherwise would destroy them altogether. I mean, this is what ties Pincus's act and Moshe's act together, because why they acted with Hashem's zeal. While Eliyahu, no, because he says, and and the Pusuk says it. I've been, I've been zealous. Mm. That didn't come out of Moshe's mouth. No. Which matter of fact, that's the Rashi on the last Pasuk of the Torah. Because it says this refers to the fact that his heart inspired him to shatter the tablets. What's the heart of Moshe? The Torah. It's Hashem. You've broken Hashem's heart. That's what Rashi's saying, I think. Yeah. And he broke his own heart. Yeah. They, their they, hearts were both broken. They were they, they saw the perverity that was happening. But what they, did Moshe please don't be angry? Which it's like the wife which, telling the husband, I know you're upset with him right now. But let me go and talk to him. Yeah. Hashem's response is Yashur Koach. Yeah. For doing that. You know, Bezrat Hashem, you know. And of course, that Midrash comes to mind, and the letters from Moshe got to the bottom, you know, the letters to part of the Lukot. Because the letters were carrying the Lukot. <laughs> Who could carry that heavy stone all the way down? You know, <laughs> I kind of believe that I got it kind of in a literal sense. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, holy meaning to yeah. Yeshua's death, meaning him giving up the ghost, giving up the spirit, which are the letters of the Torah. Because we know that the the breaking of the tablets is like the death of the Zadik. So basically, when a Zadik spirit departs, it's like letters flying off the tablets. Like <laughs> that's what Rabbi Akiva said when, yeah, it was him that was burned at the stake by the Romans, right? 
Uh, they filleted him. <laughs> oh, hot so, comb. Yeah. Um, and he was saying the Shema. Yeah. But there was another rabbi who was burned at the stake at the hand of the Romans. And one of his Talmud came up to him and said, Master, what do you see? I think I know this story. The, what the is parchment, that? The parchment burns, but not the letters, for the letters ascend yeah. to Hashemayim. Bro, Master Plan brings that down, saying that when a, a Jew dies, it's like a Torah scroll is burned. You know what, what page? Uh, it's in the chapter on morning. I believe it's around 1617. Oh, early on. It's employee-employer relations. That's 16 and 17? Yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah, I'd have to go get it then because... I thought it was around those chapters. There should be one. There should be a chapter on morning, some like near there. But it's it's literally in the opening yeah. section of it. Oh, okay. Let me see here. Justice for the weak and vulnerable. Page 36. Hold up. Respect, no. Uh, 18, chapter 18. Respect for the human being after death. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, morning. Yep. <clears throat> See, See a human being breathe his last is like seeing a scroll of law burn before one's eyes. That tremendous <sighs> spiritual potential is no more. Respect for our common humanity requires that we do not go about our business as if nothing has happened. When the person who has died is a parent or other close relative, spouse, sibling, or child, a period of mourning is required. It is clear that the seven days of mourning, Shiva, the custom of rending one's garment, Neglect of personal appearance, etc., are of very ancient origin and were observed by the family of Abraham long before the Torah was given. They have the status of a rabbinic ordinance, except for the first day when they are mandated by the Torah. And then the four stages. The rabbis divide mourning into four successive stages. One, the first is that. Between death and burial, this is when the mourners' energies must be directed towards ensuring proper arrangements for the funeral. This is the overriding mitzvah of the moment. And the rabbis, therefore, free him from all positive commandments. He may not put on tefillin, see chapter 55, 
or pray or make any benediction, nor may he eat meat or drink wine during this period. At this time, he's called a onen, from a word meaning grief, and that his state is aninut. At this stage, no attempt should be made to comfort the mourner. The wound is too fresh. As the rabbis say, do not attempt to console a person when he is dead and still before him. So now I'm thinking Raquel, her mourning. Yeah. Because um, we know the destruction of the temple. It's like the death of Zadik. Yep. Her children have been scattered off into exile. She's weeping for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, Foreman talks about what is effective mourning. Mourning and crying is what you do as a, an instinctive reaction to loss, but it doesn't change the loss. So maybe this year you come home from Ica and you're on your bare feet and then you read some lamentations in the morning and you're feeling a little sad, but just to make yourself feel a little sadder, maybe you'll watch some of Schindler's List. Then if you can cry a little bit, you have sort of done what you're supposed to do on Tishba. Or is there more to do? And if there's more, what more would that be? <clears throat> Here's a way maybe we should think about it. What does effective mourning look like? Is there such a thing as effective mourning? Mourning that doesn't just mourn loss, but does something too, <clears throat> is reparative or restorative in some way. I think we have a model for that in the Torah. Raquel, mother of our people. <clears throat> the power of Raquel weeping for her children. That's at least how Jeremiah seems to see it. I'm referring right now to probably the most famous verses in the entire book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually portrays the afterlife of another biblical figure. We are given a vision of Raquel weeping on high in the realms of heaven. Kolbe Ramad Nishma. He says there's a voice that's heard on high. <clears throat> I find it interesting that... Um, and when Matthew is recounting the events after Yeshua's birth, that he doesn't quite mention this in his gospel. It says, Kol be Ramah. In Ramah, a voice is heard. And the spelling for that is uh, Reish. Mem, um, hey, I believe.
he's using transliteration in here. I, I really wish he would have used the Hebrew. <laughs> That's okay. We can get the Hebrew. Yeah. No, he says, there's a, it's Hashem saying this. There's a voice that's heard on high. Nahi Beki Ta Marurim. There we have that word. Marurim. Bitter, very bitter. Oh, well, here we go. A voice that's crying bitter, bitter cries. That's like I was saying earlier. If you take that word and you bring it down to its verbal root, Marar, it's on the call stem. It's an active voice verb. Okay, there's only one mem in Ramah. So, Resh Mem Hey, which you know rearranges tomorrow. Yeah, I was thinking if that was a head and if you rearranged it, it would you could spell the word Rechem. Mercy. Ooh, hoo, hoo, hoo. Is the hay and the chet interchangeable? I, I don't think so, but to add more depth to it. And then he goes on to say, Raquel me baka al baneha. It's the voice of Raquel. She's crying over her children being led into exile. Bro, it interchanges with the chet. It does? Yeah. Dictionary to Targum. Oh, man. <laughs> Let's see if I can. Uh... See, that's the Shem right there. Hey, Matt, that's a sham all the way. Bringing that to mind. I'm going to see if I can flip my uh, camera here so everybody can see. Okay. Hey, fifth letter of the alphabet. It interchanges dialectically with an olive as Dalit Hey or Dalit Olive. It's kind of like some uh, Aramaic stuff. Then it says, uh, and then Hagada, like Hagada, which you can make Agada. So Hagada and Agada, you know, mm -hmm. like the folklore uh, level of uh, study. And there it is with a chet, as in dahak or decha. Right there. Yep. Just looking at the others. Uh, Daha, And it interchanges with a vav. Are you serious? <laughs> Behave. <laughs> Behave. Yeah. Behave. Yeah. 
Bahat. Roots. Revu. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yep. Nice. Gotta love some Targum, man. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> almost Atbash there. Yeah. So anyway, you tapping in, man. It's good stuff. So in the bitterness, there's an element of mercy. And because water dilutes judgment, and what do we pray for at the end of Sukkot around Shemini Atzeret? Yeah. When we study in Ta'anit, that tractate, mm. when they're, they're asked the appropriate time to ask for rain. Yeah, because you don't want it on Sukkot. You want it after everybody gets back home. Yeah. <laughs> It's like yeah, okay, you want to be able to take your you want to be able to take your sukkah down and not rain on you, you know, yeah. <laughs> and put it away, you know, when it's all done, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, that's the beauty about this narrative that he brings down here is that Jeremiah, of course, lives through the very first exile of the destruction of the first temple. This is a prophecy that is describing all of these hundreds of thousands of children of Raquel leaving the land of Israel. They're being led away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar's troops. That's what's happening on earth. And in heaven, Raquel is crying. She refuses to be consoled. I think she refuses to be consoled today. Because we're still in the galut. We still have this mentality. We're still thinking that. If the sun has set you free, you are free indeed. You know, for her children, because they are not there. See, that part Matthai quotes. Referring to Herod's decree that all the newborns be killed up to two years old. Mm -hmm. They're being led away. She's desolate. Uh, Vohu. Oh, see, now we're getting the Zohar territory here. <laughs> then Jeremiah gives us God's response to Raquel. Ko Amar Hashem, thus says God. Mini kolech mi baki. Hold back your voice from crying. Fe enayich mi dima. And dry your eyes from the tears. Okay, here's the other key uh, verse here. This phrase, ki yesh sakar, the hu ala take. For there is a reward for what you have done. What is the reward for her?
Beishavu may Eretz Oyev. Your children will return from the land of the enemy. Beyesh Tikva Leacharetech. There is hope for you in the end. Acharayamim is the phrase that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the whole thing about a strange son will be born to me with the birth of Yosef is also connected to being called the son of the last days. Nehum Hashem Veshavu Banim Le Gevulam. Your children will return to their rifle borders. That's end of days. Yeah, we're literally in the Geula process right now before our very eyes. We're just waiting on the completion of it. Yeah, and also to get us out of this galut mindset. Absolutely. And start behaving like, yes, we are truly redeemed. Because the uh, Mendel Kessen says the work of Mashiach ben Yosef is not done yet. Wow. See, because you know of him, that's why I say that we we need to be have this mindset, this consciousness, active consciousness of Mashiach. Because he's not a singularity. We can bring it about. Where the church is falling so dreadfully short is where we can step up to the plate and really let the light shine. Yeah. We have to. We really got to step it up. Yeah. I mean, in... Uh, when I learned about this and Hashem telling her, don't weep, that's a reminder that he also told uh, Yermiyahu, don't pray for this people. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> like, whoa, man. That bad. I'm wondering if we're seeing that with Israel right now. The way, politically speaking, though. That's why I think it's so important, like what we're doing. Like, between Strictly Torah, Magi Yashenu, other people like us, I mean, we really, we've got to do something. We've got to act. I mean, I'm, I'm doing what... Hashem's given me, but I know there's always more. You know? Yeah. There's, there's just always more. Um, yeah, but just just like it's a, just a general encouragement to know that, hey, like, whatever you're doing, whatever you're increasing in, you know, little by little. Because the whole thing I was going to mention earlier with the grasshoppers is that if you read Torah Wellsprings that week, there's a beautiful section at the end that talked about um, the vision that they gave themselves. That's how they viewed themselves. The spies viewed themselves like that. Oh. 
So it was a consciousness thing is what I'm getting at. Uh It was also a consciousness thing to create Tishabov. There was no reason for us to weep. And the Torah goes into that saying, you cried for nothing. Yeah. Now now I'm going to give you something to cry about. You will never forget this day. And the tradition we have is that Mashiach is supposed to be born on Tishabav, and that, that the temple is supposed to be rebuilt because it is in, uh, oh my goodness, it is in one of the Midrashim. I'm going to have to source this thing out. But yeah. it literally says, I destroyed the temple in fire, and I'm going to build it in fire. And then I'm going to use the constellation of the lion to rebuild the lion. Because a lion destroyed it. The lion being Babylon, he came in, destroyed it. During the month of the lion, which is Av, the constellation, and the temple. That's why Mashiach is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Watch yep. out for that right hook, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. So if you think about there is a reward, the crying that we're supposed to have. This- but then there's the other pursuit that says, and he will come to his temple. Yeah. What temple? Yeah. What does that really mean? So you need to source <laughs> that one out, too. <laughs> So, I took a screenshot of this one. Zohar Pritzker. Are y'all ready for this? I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Dude, Hashem says, I myself declare. It says, the full verse reads, I myself declares Hashem will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory inside of her. Mm. So then, right before that, it's talking about, and these are all the footnotes. <laughs> so that was footnote uh, 130, 138. Now I'm going to read footnote 137 for Zohar Pencus. And it says, after the destruction of the first temple, when many Israelite men married foreign women, Due to their sinfulness, this generation, too, did not deserve the holy temple. So they had to rebuild the second temple themselves. Israel still awaits the final redemption when God will bring down the heavenly temple built by his own hands and plant it in Jerusalem. On God's building the temple with his own hands and eventually bringing it down to earth at the end of days, see Makilta Shurta 10, Makilta de Rashbi, aka Rabbi Shemion Bar Yochai, Exodus 15 17, and a lot more. And then this, Yalkut Shimoni, Telim 848. 
where God's everlasting temple is contrasted with those built by Shlomo and Ezra. So that's some uh, Tisha Bob stuff. Like we literally have through the consciousness, the ability to overturn this whole time. Yeah. And Rabbi Trugman brought down the root of Geula and Gola is Gaul. The root of redemption or the root of Gola, Geula first, which is redemption. Gola, which is exile. They, they both share the same root, which is the Gimel Lamet, which is Gaul, which is a cycle. And then he connects it to the 10 songs, the primordial songs. It's supposed to be the 10th song sang by Mashiach. It's in the masculine. All the other songs are called Shira. The 10th song is called Shir, which means that the final redemption that's going to happen is going to cease the cycle of going back into exile. There will be no more exiles after this one. So when you really think about the reward, you think about the voice heard on high, you think about our consciousness, you think about what wasn't there that is now there, just like there wasn't a Tisha B'Av before, and now we have one, guess what? We don't have a temple right now. Well, guess what? There could be one. Yeah. That's pretty much a comforting prophecy. I mean, on Tishbab, if we mourn exile, here's the promise that exile will be over. Raquel's tears were, were really effective. If somehow we can learn to do what Raquel did here, if we could be answered the same way she was answered, that would be amazing. What was effective about Raquel's weeping? So on the one hand, we might try to emulate Raquel here to whatever extent we can, but it's a double-edged sword because maybe it's completely impossible to emulate her. She, after all, was the mother of our entire people, and she was crying over them like only a mother can. There is no more poignant an image than that of a mother crying over her lost children. That brings up something else. We should not cause our parents grief. We might as well say that if, it, if that's what it takes to storm the gates of heaven, if that's what it takes to get God to commit to lift the exile, then only Raquel can do it. She's the mother of our people, and we're not. We cannot possibly evoke the same response from God. Does this picture of Raquel that Jeremiah gives us lead us nowhere but a dead end? And I thought of Yeshua on the execution stake, and Yochanan is standing there with Mary and Martha. And he says, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Yeah. 
Eliyahu will be sent to turn the hearts of the children back to their parents. I want to suggest to you that in the fact, this portrayal of Raquel that Jeremiah gives us has much to teach us indeed. Because if you look carefully at what Jeremiah is saying, yes, Raquel is successful in storming the heavenly gates, but she's not successful simply because she cries. She's not successful simply because she is a mother in anguish. Keep the word marar in your head. There is a hidden secret to her success. Why was Rachel's crying rewarded? Here again was God's response to Raquel. Min i kolech. Mi beki ve enyaich. Mi dima. Hold back your voice from crying. Dry your eyes from your tears. Now, the next thing God is going to do is give a reason as to why Raquel should be consoled. He's going to tell her what about her made, what about her made such a difference to the Almighty himself? Well, we might say, well, because I've listened to your voice, I've seen your tears, I have compassion for your plight. But interestingly, that's not what God says. Why should you dry your tears? Ki yes sakar lepe ule teh. For there is a reward for your actions. Reward for your actions? All she did was cry. Or did she? You get listened to if you cry. Maybe you get compassion. If you cry, you don't get rewarded. If you cry, do you? I mean, think about your son or daughter when they come to you and they like have an accident in the playground. They scrape their knee and they come running to you. They're crying, crying, daddy, daddy, it hurts. You know, you know, what do you do? What's your first instinct as a parent? What are you going to do? Pick them up. You know, you're going to try and fix it. You're, you're giving them attention. You're acknowledging their hurt. You know, you'll say, it'll be all right. Hey, I'll, t- uh, this, I'll take care of it. <laughs> you know, let's, let's put a Band-Aid on it, you know, get it cleaned up, you know. <laughs> I mean, if that's what Jeremiah was trying to say, that wouldn't even be the way to say it. Jeremiah should have said, Ki yeshakar di le di matech. There is, there's a reward for your tears. And I break the contraction up to say, there is, present tense, a reward for your tears. 
but he doesn't say that. It's, it's that the Pasuk says, Yesh Sakar Le Pe Ula Take. There's a there's a reward for your actions. But what were her actions beyond to cry? See, this is what we need to get to, right? See, this is what I was talking about earlier. Merit for your actions. This is what this whole narrative is driving at right here. Because we don't hide behind Mashiach. <laughs> we yeah. actually do things. Yes. And I'll kind of summarize it, you know, just for brevity's sake, is that Raquel saw it from Leah's point of view. Leah was not expecting to get married, but Lavon put her in that position against her will. And against Raquel's will, he takes away her getting married to Yaakov. Yeah, because Yaakov originally, yeah, he, I've got to get this straight in my head. It's um, Leah that he first works for, right? Raquel. Okay, it is Raquel. So, yeah, he comes in with Leah. They do a dosi do It's Leah that's going to get married. And so now we have Raquel. She could be bitter the whole time and this and the verses bear this out Leah's having children and Raquel's barren she could you know Raquel could go you, you're taking all this away but there comes a point in the narrative in Genesis where she asked for the mandrakes and we don't know what kind of flowers they were because the Torah doesn't tell us right and Leah's like going, wait a minute. Okay. You have the husband, but now you want the mandrakes that uh, Reuben. Reuben gave to me. And the other thing that Foreman brings out is that as a parent, right, you have a newborn, so you're going to identify with this. You're, you're going to be constantly giving to him. But at some point, you're going to see your child give back. These are the first fruits of his actions coming back to you. Think about that. If you're a parent, you've seen this. You would know what this means. That, you know, like your kid is sitting at the table, like, let's say they're like they're six looking forward a little bit. They're at the table. They're drawing something. They could barely contemplate what they're doing or have the skill, but nonetheless, they're just, just sitting there drawing. And they run to you, Daddy, Daddy, look, I drew this, or Mommy, you know? And you stick that on the fridge. And the years go by. And they start to grow, and they're, and they're starting to give back what you've given to them. But the first time that they do something like that, that is the first fruits of their actions. Why does Hashem tell us to bring the first fruits of the season? 
something else Foreman brings out. No one wants the first fruits when you go grocery shopping in the fruit section. You know they're not the best. Wow. That's not what the Taurus says. It says wow. the first fruits. Bikurim. Wow. This is what a son or a daughter would bring to you when they've reached that stage of development and they bring this to you. It's not the best. No, it's just simply the first fruits. This is what Reuben did with Leah. He went out and picked the mandrakes. He brought them to Leah. And now Raquel's asking for them. This is deep what you're sharing right now. And so did you ever thought about our generation? That's what I'm alluding to. Ours right now. The bickering of redemption, perhaps. That's right to shame. So Raquel sees it from Leah's point of view. And because she does that, it does not come from the side of Gabura, but rather from the side of Hesed, which is Abba. Forgetting the fact that what Levon did is act of deception with Yaakov. Because Raquel said, he was my husband. He was supposed to be, but you can go in. She gave her the signs, the signals. Yeah. She transcended all that bitterness, all that rejection. Because we find in Yeshsakar that she gave birth to Yisakar. It's when you combine those two words together. Because you see that phrase in, Jer in the verse in Jeremiah. 3114. Um, but yeah, so what is, yeah, that's what it means for us today. People have wronged us, they've done all kinds of things, but we can't repay them with that. Oh, now you're getting into the master's words. <laughs> yes. Because this is why Matthew quotes certain parts of the verse, not to leave anything out, but to leave room for what is really there. I think about everything that happens in our history and even what you shared with me today about the Kabodnik that sadly was stabbed. You know, we have all of these horrible things that happened during this these three weeks. You know, past, present, and Bezrat Hashem, not in the future. But it's just like, okay, so we've been wronged. Let's do what Rachel did. Or does, because everything's in the present with her. So we've been wronged, but we need to we need to come to Hashem. I mean, look how many people visit Raquel's grave. 
I mean, thousands of people, you know, go there. Um, so getting back found, to the rumination. Um, found my source. It is oh, okay. Pasikta de Rav Kahana, 1315. That's the Lion King temple drop. Mm. The circle of life. <laughs> All right. Wife likes that movie, by the way. <laughs> it's a great movie. To those that speak of unbelief in Israel and seem to think that their spiritual arrogance is endorsed by Paul in their selective reading of Romans 11, and note that selective reading of Romans 11, we remind them of the rest of the story. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He's revealing a mystery here. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. What does it say in Mishle regarding that? Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. Oh, if, was, you got, if you got commentary on that, man, you're going to have to read it. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is we've read this before. And it was basically a huge drop about tour study. But uh, here it is again. Because you can't ever hear too much. Medzudo. And all that you do, know that the purpose of whatever you do is to fulfill God's will. Then he will direct your path. You will succeed. According to Bar Kapara, Barakot 63a, the verse encapsulates all the main ideas of Torah. Know him and all your ways, evenly the seemingly mundane. This is why Halakha is important. When eating, one should recognize the divine wisdom and creation of food and the digestive system. That's from the Ralbag. It says one should not live to eat, but rather eat to live and serve the creator. Instead of sleeping because he is tired, a person should think that sleep will restore his energy for the pursuit of Torah and mitzvot. A person who considers each of his actions determines how it will contribute to the service of God. Will uh, The service of God will be serving him every minute. And then it says, just as one can sanctify an animal by designating it for temple service, one can infuse his eating and drinking and all his mundane affairs with holiness by utilizing them to serve God. Side note, everything that you do you can infuse holiness into it because everything that you do is about serving Hashem. That's crazy. Cause what does that say about like driving and grocery shopping? You know, like <laughs> it's like, well, uh, yeah. it's, everything can be a, everything can be a worship experience. Yeah. That's lean, not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him. And what verse uh, is that in Michelin? That's three, five, uh, five through six 
and verse 7. So, um, I think this part on verse 7 about do not be wise in your own eyes. But do not rely on your own understanding. Even if you trust in Hashem, do not rely on your own understanding as an additional crutch. Vilna Gaon, one who relies on his own prowess, forfeits the divine assistance he would normally receive. The Raubag. This verse refers to Torah study. Trust in Hashem means to spend as much as necessary to engage a teacher. Do not depend exclusively on your own understanding. And do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not refuse to accept reprimand from Rashi. Ibn Ezra sees this phrase as a continuation of verse 6. Thus, do not think that your own wisdom is enough to find the straight path. Rabbi Yonah, do not attribute wealth and success to your own wisdom. As many people do. And then the final one from Rabbi Mendel of Kotsk. Do not make judgments based merely on what you see. First impressions can be misleading. Analyze and consider. Which you know that really applies to these three weeks and heading into Tishabah because we can't judge by what we see. We can't judge that we won't be redeemed by the level that we fall into. We can't judge that we won't be redeemed by, is it really possible that Mashiach can or can't show up in our lifetime? You know, like we're spending these three weeks every year, you know, they're supposed to deepen us, you know, and our, and our closeness to Hashem and our yearning for the exile to end. So, Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, that's uh, basically what Shaul is saying here in Romans 11. You know, you know, don't be wise in your own opinion. Our own opinions are worthless without the sages. Which again, to that unbelieving Israel drop you know and seeming like the people are cut off like we don't we can't ever afford to think that we know what that means or what that looks like yeah it's important to know see that's an important question that we're answering here but also within the question is question that we're also reminded of Hashem's covenant faithfulness to Israel He's a faithful husband. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they did. You know, uh, I think Ali Malik Bitterman and one of the Torah wellsprings drops. Um, it doesn't matter to what depths you fall spiritually. 
you can still do teshuva. You can still pick yourself up, you know, get back on the saddle, man, and just keep going. Um, was that verse that says a righteous man falls seven times? Yes. And he, and he gets back up. But then in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, and the Zadik will live by his faithfulness. Shaul quotes that verse in this letter and in other places, in other letters as well. So it's interesting because that basically is saying that the way to live is to continuously get up. Like rise from your failures because that's what Bain HaMetrim is supposed to bring out, rising from our failure. In the past, we've done things. Now it's time to rise up. And it was so crazy that uh, Rabbi Trugman brought this up and he said that on Tisha B'Av, especially going into Tuba Av, it's like this process of rising up from the ashes. Because when you look at the state of Israel being a thing and we're, we're back in the land and the Geula is happening, the predecessor for the state of Israel being established was the Holocaust. absolutely (laughs) tragic like how how can you even measure how tragic that was and yet that's life from the dead that's that's the amazing part that that just shows Hashem's faithfulness even in the better depths of despair in the worst place imaginable the worst death camp of all of them was Auschwitz. And at its peak, it was killing 3,000 a day. Man. Those, mostly the elderly, those who weren't physically able to work, into the gas chamber. I'm reminded of a story from uh, Echoes That Remain. A daughter whose mother would always take a blind man uh, meal. The daughter would always wonder, why are you so uh, frugal with the meals? And she said, and she thought, she thought this to herself, so one day, you know, she uh, awoke early and she heard a front, she heard a door open and then the blast of cold winter air coming into the, to the house. And so she bundled up and she followed her mother at a discreet distance and she went to the house of a blind man and left him a meal and walked away. And the daughter says she kept this secret all her life. But the mother went to the gas chamber at Auschwitz, 
because a lot of these communities were in Poland. And they were, that's where they were sent, you know. But she carried this with her for her entire life. But that's the thing is with the Holocaust generation dying out and so few of them that remain, is there a children that's going to carry on those memories? You know, it's, and what I've learned about the Holocaust, I tried to pass on. Because I had grandparents who were German. My grandfather was served in the German army in World War One, But when he saw Hitler, Hitler's rise to power and the Nazis, he was opposed to it, but he could not speak out because the SS was something to be feared. Hitler modeled, Hitler modeled the SS after the Roman Praetorian Guard. They were ruthless and methodical. They would stamp out any opposition whatsoever. They, they were only accountable to Hitler. Basically, no accountability. And I firmly believe this, that we are headed to days like that once again, because no one learns from history. And because they don't, they are doomed to repeat it. So that's, and the thing about the church is, you know, they, they're not, yeah, there are those coming out like you and I and so many others because we're learning from history. We see what has happened. The church has blood on its hands. They're staying with the, the souls of so many Jewish people. And I refer to the Catholic church because primarily that's the denomination from which all the others sprang that is primarily guilty. Yep, that's the root. That is the root. Um, but yeah, Shaul continues that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. <clears throat> and the fullness of the Gentiles was up until um, the War of 67. When Jerusalem went back into Jewish hands. Really? What did, what did Yeshua say? And Jerusalem shall be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Look what Shaul's saying here. Same thing. Fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But there's another level to this, of course. Um, he could be referred, I think he's also referring to uh, like you and I in our day, causing a lot to return to his way, which I think is what Shaul means here, in addition to the master's words. And so all Israel will be saved. That is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, the Besorah, they are enemies for your sake. But 
concerning the election, they are beloved. See, this is what gets ignored. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. He's talking about Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov here. Hmm. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. There's nothing that can take away, revoke their status with Hashem. It's Hashem who exclusively deals with Israel. No one else. You know, it's like you were saying earlier. You can't tell these people you're going to hell. Just because you knock on the door and say, oh, you don't have Jesus as your savior. That's a rhetorical question when you stop to think about it, I think. <laughs> it's rhetorical nonsense, you know. Um, yeah, Isaiah says, you know, all Israel will be righteous. And then we have Shaul saying here, all Israel will be saved. <laughs> you know, and that we, sh he also says in this same chapter that we would provoke Israel to zeal. Like a pink is. Or, yeah, to zeal, yeah, to jealousy, cannot. Those two are two sides of the same coin. And we are seeing that reaction among a lot of the Jewish communities, you know, in the diaspora and in Eretz Israel. But also, I would say that we would provoke them to zeal for Messiah. But the right kind, Hashem's zeal for Mashiach, not, not our own. Right, because we want to be in that category. Just like Moshe, just like Pincus, because it says my zeal, not yours. <clears throat> yeah. Which, by the way, those who tell people, you know, do you have JC as your as your Messiah? They're operating off of their own zeal, not the zeal of Hashem. Because, you know, the the scarlet thread behind the whole tapestry is this is how I want to live my life. And it's not based off of anything. <laughs> not based off of any sources. Church on Sunday, you know, go go try to look down on people for the rest of the week. Like, but not overtly though. Because, you know, you want to you want to come off nice, but if people don't play by your rules, you know, namely believing your same Messiah, profess your same faith and beliefs. If you do anything different that makes them feel uncomfortable, you know, it, it really is a, a very uh, distorted thing, you know. So it's sad. I, I, I continue to be amazed at the freedom that continues to pour out of Torah from I don't even know how many years ago now that I left Christianity but I'm still to this day feeling the freedom that I get from it 
get from Torah every week. Like, I don't have to go around browbeating people. I don't have to go around feeling like I'm better than other people. You know, because, man, if they're not believers, that ain't going to be good, you know, kind of thing. And boy, the rapture is going to happen anytime now. So I'll be out. You know, now I can get to genuinely know people, get to care about what they value, you know, and that creates a connection. And maybe they'll do Torah, maybe they won't. But at the end of the day, if they don't do Torah, I don't, I'm not upset with them. You know, you start to think about what we talked about earlier. How does Hashem view that person? You know, I can actually see the substance of character in people because it's not overlaid with this religious overtone of how much church they go to or how much Bible study they do. Because you and I both know you can Bible study all day, but you can be a horrible person. Yeah, it's like I say, can a righteous person commit a wicked act? Can a wicked person do a righteous deed? Yeah. You know, it's it's two-sided, you know. But yeah, you need to get to know people, you know. <laughs> I was able to kind of sit down with my nephew and share just a little bit with him about my experience, you know. And he said something nice, you know, I have respect for all religions, you know. And with that, I told him, you know, um, <clears throat> the thing that sets the Torah apart is it's not a, a religious system. It's, it's simply the revelation of Hashem, you know, from Sinai. You know, it's who he is. You know, That's where I started from, you know, because that's what we need to have is that Sinai experience. It's like we're at the foot of the mountain. And we see the thunder, we see the lightning, and then we hear the call Hashem ourselves. That's the Torah. <laughs> you know, we, that's the experience that all of us have to have for it to mean anything, for you to internalize it, to be, let it become who you are. <clears throat> it's not a religious experience so to speak. Yeah. You know, it's... I always like to... I was reading Heschel today, and now I find myself wanting... now uh, reading it again. Um, <clears throat> because Christianity has Roman roots, we need to be reminded of what the real... of the essence of Shabbat is. We are all infatuated with the splendor of space, with the grandeur of the things of space. Thing is a category that lies heavy on our minds, <clears throat> tyrannizing all our thoughts. <clears throat> our imagination tends to mold all concepts in its image. <clears throat> in our daily lives, we attend primarily to that which the senses are spelling out for us. 
to what the eyes perceive, to what the fingers touch. Reality to us is a thinghood consisting of substances that occupy space. Even God is conceived by most of us as a thing. The result of our thinginess is our blindness to all reality that fails to identify itself as a thing, as a matter of fact. This is obvious in our understanding of time, which, being thingless and insubstantial, appears to us as if it had no reality. Indeed, we know what to do with space, but do not know what to do about time except to make it subservient to space. Most of us seem to labor for the sake of things of space. As a result, we suffer from a deeply rooted dread of time and stand aghast when compelled to look into its face. Time to us is sarcasm, a slick, treacherous monster with a jaw like a furnace incinerating every moment of our lives. Shrinking, therefore, from facing time, we escape for shelter to things of space. The intentions we are unable to carry out, we deposit in space. Possessions become the symbols of our repressions, jubilees of frustrations. But things of space are not fireproof. They only add fuel to the flames. Is the joy of possession an antidote to the terror of time which grows to be a dread of inevitable death? Things when magnified are forgeries of happiness. They are a threat to our very lives. We are more harassed than supported by the Frankensteins of spatial things. It is impossible for man to shrink the problem of time. The more we think, the more we realize. We cannot conquer time through space. We can only master time in time. The higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. In a religious experience, for example, it is not a thing that opposes itself on man, but a spiritual presence. What is retained in the soul is the moment of insight rather than the place where the act came to pass. A moment of insight is a fortune, transporting us beyond the confines of measured time. Spiritual life begins to decay when we fail to sense the grandeur of what is eternal in time. And what is this you're reading from? Yeah. The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. So I have to ask if you could repeat one statement because it's so epic about the sacred moment that we have to encounter. Oh, okay. Okay. Everyone should get this book because you will understand the true nature of Shabbat if you do. When your wife lights those candles, you are facing a sacred moment.
not a religious experience. Yeah, that's the statement that when you read that, I was just like, so beautifully put. The sacred moment part, the facing the sacred moment, like that's what time is for. That's the higher goal of spiritual living is to face sacred moments. And he really deals with, prior to what I just read, he deals with the Western thought here and how idolatrous it, it is. When, you know, when he says, even pantheistic philosophy is a religion of space. That, he's talking about Rome here. And I've said this before. Rome is enamored with the things of space, the grandeur of the things of space. Look what they built, the Colosseum, the, the, the cities. They're in love with spatial things. Look what, our, what we do in this country. We're doing the same thing. But not time. Not we build monoliths. We build, look at the Capitol building. That's a prime example right there. In Washington, D.C., all the monuments we erect in honor of some past hero. Not that's necessarily a bad thing, but we need to remember that that's just a spatial thing. There's nothing truly sacred about it. There's nothing truly holy about it. Because you're not facing the eternal. You're not embracing the eternal. Every time we welcome Shabbat, we enter into the eternal. And we're reminded of the world to come. Of what is coming. That we face the world to come. And that's where our reward is. This is what the sages say. Yes, are The reward Yes, Shakar. Yeah, he says the supreme being is thought to be the finite space. Dosibe natura. As extension or space as a as its attribute, not time. Time to Spinoza was merely an accident of motion. <laughs> off base with that a mode of thinking and his desire to develop a philosophy more geometrical in the manner of geometry which is the science of space is significant of his space mindedness this, is, this shows the dichotomy between those who are spiritually minded eternally minded while well, I was reading from Abigdor Miller, are you thinking of the Holy One? Blessed be he. We just read this in Proverbs. Yeah. See, Shlomo understands that when he says that. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him. 
meaning you're acknowledging the eternal. Yeah, you just read that earlier. The primitive mind finds it hard to realize an idea without the aid of imagination. And it is the realm of space where imagination wields its sway. Of the gods, it must have a visible image. See, right here. This is... Holding a visible image. I see Jesus. I just... JC... It's pantheistic. It's so Roman. Yeah, of gods, it must have a visible image where there is no image. There is no God. The reverence for the sacred image, for the sacred monument or place, is not only indigenous to most religions, it has been retained by men of all ages, all nations, pious, superstitious, or even anti-religious. They all continue to pay homage to banners and flags, to national shrines, to monuments erected to kings or heroes. Everywhere, the desecration of holy shrines is considered sacrilege. And the shrine may become so important that the idea it stands for is consigned to oblivion. The memorial becomes an aid to amnesia, the means uh, stultify the end. For things of space are at the mercy of man, though too sacred to be polluted. They are not too sacred to be exploited. To retain the holy to perpetuate the presence of God, his image is fashioned. Talk about the Egel Zahav. Yet a God who cannot, who yet a God who can be fashioned, a God who can be confined, is but a shadow of man. Hundred percent. And then he, what I read at the very start, we're all infatuated with the splendor of space. That causes us to ask for a king and to reject Hashem, and it disheartens Shemuel. And so they forget that there is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. Not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things of space becomes our sole concern. You know, and this is this is really the how the Christian theology is infected with. They're practically I think they're enslaved to it. Oh yeah. It's a it's a cycle. You know, but unless 
I mean, it's good that you and I have come out of this. You know, my wife, everyone else in the group, you know, and Strictly Tor and so many others, you know, we've broken this cycle ourselves. Because ultimately, that's where it starts. That's how you change the world. That's how you do Takum, starting with yourself and then your family and then your friends, your town or village, your city, county, state, then the country and so forth. But we have to be reminded that we're brought into the one people of God. There are not two. There's only one Israel. There is no such thing as, quote unquote, the church. That can conveniently distance herself from unbelieving Israel. Because, you know, how can you say that when you're committing that very sin? So funny because the thought that popped into my head was like self-projection. Accusing well, someone something you're guilty of. Yeah, projecting your sin on someone else. A self-reinforcing delusion. The only people of God are the joined are joined to the olive tree of Israel. We are not the root, we are the wild olive branch grafted in. We become Jewish. Yeah. But we do not boast against the root because it's the root that supports us. Not the other way around. That's the meaning of the word Baruch. You know, we say Baruch Atah Hashem upon our conversion, right? With our, when we immerse in the water. And Baruch comes from Barek, which is an agricultural term, which means to graft in. So yeah. with every bracha that we say, it's like we're just anchoring down. Yeah. If the root is dead, then so are the branches. Going back to the question, you know. If God has cut off unbelieving Israel, what hope do any of us have? We'll be without God in the world, without hope. As Shaul says in Ephesians 2. If there are branches at all, it means that there is still a root. There is one king, one people, one family, and there is one standard of righteousness for us all. Yeah, and I was looking at Torah Wellsprings. Uh, I downloaded the PDF. And then on page 27, Bainham Hitzerim. 
the Gemara says when a person is brought in, brought in heaven to judgment, he asked, did you deal honestly in business? Did you have set times for Torah study? Did you have children? Did you await the salvation? Were you uh, um, mif apel? Study deeply the Torah? Uh, Shabbos 31. One of the primary questions asked is whether he waited for the salvation for Mashiach. Someone once asked the Abdur Rav a blessed memory advice regarding his business, and the Abdur Rav answered with the wise, with wise counsel. Then the Rav emitted a deep moan and said, "A great tragedy happened today." What happened? The man asked. We didn't bring the Korban Tamid today. And then the after Rav cried copiously for Yerushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash. Someone came to the Kotzker Rebbe of blessed memory complaining that his son-in-law had become a Kotzker Kosi. He told the Rebbe that his daughter was very upset about this, not to mention that he, that so was he, the father-in-law. He cried, whoever has a heart can understand me. How could the heart not burst from pain because of my daughter's sorrow? The Rebbe replied, if one indeed has a heart, how could it not burst from pain because of the Korban? Beit HaMikdash. During the three weeks, Zadik visited the Safati Met of Gur, a blessed memory. What brings you here? The Safari met asked since he knew that his this Sadiq lived far away. My family's tradition is to travel during the three weeks, the Sadiq explained. Hashem is Kivya Kivayakol in Galut. So we go into Galut too. The main thing is to remember that we aren't home. The Safari met replied. The Safari met rarely traveled, but he continually reminded himself that we aren't home. We aren't where we should be. Rev Yavkov Emden of Blessed Memory, Siddur Beit Yavkov Tishbarov 616 writes, If our only sin were that we aren't mourning for Yerushalayim, it would be sufficient to prolong our galut. In my opinion, this is the primary cause for all the terrible disruptions beyond perception that befalls us in Galut. We are pursued and don't have peace. It's all because the morning has left our hearts. The Magan Avraham 551.45 writes, the Arizal taught that one should mourn during these days of Ben after midday and cry for around half an hour. And the Kazam Sofer's yeshiva, the afternoons during the three weeks, they would read together the Tikkun Katsos and mourn the Korban. Generally, the Zadik Reb Faisal Sofer was the Kazan. He cried bitterly, and the community would cry along with him. Once Reb Fischl wasn't in yeshiva, and a young Bakur with a sweet voice was chosen to lead Tikkun Katsos. This Bakur didn't say it in a crying voice like Reb Fischl. He sang it joyously. It appeared more like a Yom Tov tefillah than lamentations. When he finished, the Kazam Sofer said, 
we have to check out this Bakur, whether he belongs to the Sabase Zavis uh, Yeshiva group, because how can one relate to the Korban, Beit Hamikdash, with so much ease and comfort? And note 13 on that, the Kazam Sofer said, whoever mourns for the Beit Hamikdash during the three weeks will merit having good children. Amen. Well, that's what stood out for me on that, because uh, my focus, you know, is three weeks. You know, all of us. Um, is there anything to do with it? Um, Yeah, I'm just looking at Abigdor Miller. Yeah, he talks about a lot about the moon in his commentary on this Parsha. Um, part three, illuminating the darkness. The great darkness. Now, the Am Yisrael is symbolized by the moon in the night, not only because of the light they are expected to shine into the darkness of the outside world. It's true that's a very important function of our lives, but there's another darkness that is much worse, more than the darkness, the scientists and the false religions, more than the darkness of the universities and the street, the darkness that's most difficult to see through, the truth that's most difficult to search out and discover is the truth about oneself. That's I was the most just thinking that because about the consciousness and getting to the level of Mashiach, the spark that's within us, to yeah. actualize that. Yeah, that's the most difficult of all. The greatest of all dangers is the danger of being deceived about oneself, of not recognizing who we really are. There are good people who are doing wicked things. I was just pointing that out earlier. <laughs> Yeah, wicked things all the time and don't realize it. Good people who are doing wicked things all the time and don't realize it. And that's because when it comes to oneself, not only is it dark, but you're totally blind. Just being blunt. <laughs> this is why we need other people. They can yeah. see our they can see us. Got to be known. Got to be willing to be seen. Reproved. Which is That's a part so of fun. leaning out on your own understanding. <laughs> or um, I think it's either Mishle 13 1 or 14 1. A false balance is toiva to Adonai, but a just weight is his delight. 
honest measurements, you know? Right. We want our Javier to be honest with us about ourselves, and they will want us to be honest about them. That's the only way we can get Mashiach. Um, oh, yeah. States in the Torah, Deborah 16, 19, bribes blind the eyes of even wise men. It means that there's no such thing as taking a bribe and remaining impartial. Impossible. Absolutely. That's the other aspect of darkness is our political leaders. They take bribes all the time. Wow. Special interest lobbies. That's nothing more than a bribe. And what's the biggest, the biggest bribe in the world? The biggest bribery in the world is love of oneself. Everybody loves themselves more than anything else. And that means we are all as blind as can be when it comes to seeing one's own faults. Oh, man, that reminds me of that Hasidic tale. Um, if you look through a window, what do you see? And then if you put the silver behind it, Kasef. turns into a mirror. And all you see is yourself. That's the Rebbe on arrogance. Which, you know, really that's the answer to this question. Or it, it really helps give understanding where there seems to be a lack of understanding for what what hope has anyone, you know, as far as if unbelieving Israel has been cut off. Because the answer being that this is a grand scheme. The reason we're in exile is a grand scheme and we have to be like Rachel because Leah was given you know and it should have been us what was ours was taken away from us you know and you can play that out on so many different levels but the main point being that the sacrifice that Rachel made, the sacrifice that Leah made, that's the coming together of the, the two opposites. You know, as far as understanding the nations who are coming in, the sparks, you know, because, I mean, there should be no reason why, why we're in exile. You know, we... We were with Hashem. We have both temples, you know. But yet there still needed to be someone come in who was one of the sparks trapped in the darkness, trapped in the klipa, 
there's still currently more. We still have time. Time is dwindling down. Which is why everything is called a moed. An appointed time. Because we are to be masters of time. And that was the beginning of our exodus from its reign. So, Kohalat uh, 3, there is a time and a purpose for everything under the heavens. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard that song before. By the no, never. <laughs> it's an old school. I used to hear it as a kid. Do everything, turn, turn, turn. There's oh, that season, one? turn, turn, turn. Yes, I've heard that. Any purpose to everything under heaven. Yeah. So may we be able to see the darkness in ourselves and transform it and get to Mashiach. Yep. When and it comes to everyone's own faults, everyone's totally blind. Yeah. But it's not until we look out for others the same way that Rachel looked out for Leah that that darkness flees yep. and gives us the opportunity to see. This is why Mashiach said, the greatest among you will be the servant. He that will be first shall be last and the last shall be first. Or don't sit in the best seat. Right. At the party. Mm-hmm. Lest the host come and say, uh, I need you to sit there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those that humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. I mean. Oh, man. Even when you kick yourself, when you bang your head against the wall and you say, I was wrong. Why did I do it? So while you're banging your head against the wall, you're thinking, what a nice fellow I, uh, that I am that I'm doing this. <laughs> oh, man. I, you know... That's something that should be avoided is self-flagellation, um, you know, self-loathing. Just pick yourself up, pull, pull yourself together, and just move on. Another moment's coming. There'll be a lot more. <laughs> a whole lot more. Well, maybe merit the greatest moment. The revealing of the Beit HaMikdash. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. So, to, to actualize this spark of Mashiach, we, we all have to have our collective consciousness tuned in. Don't want to forget about this. 
And I think I'll use this to cap it off. <laughs> um, okay, the true zealot. God said to Pincus, I give him my covenant of peace, a covenant of everlasting priesthood. Sephorno writes that death occurs because of incompatibility between the different parts of an organism. Where complete peace reigns, death is delayed. In fact, we find that Pincus lived much longer than all his contemporaries. And if he is to be identified with Eliyahu, he is indeed still alive. In the Zohar, we also find that a person who is zealous for God is immune to the angel of death. Since Pincus is Eliyahu, this explains why he did not die. We need to understand, however, that there is about what there is about zeal, which endows a person pos uh, possessing it with such high levels of being. Normally, we find that zeal is connected with anger, and this is surely not an attractive trait. Praying for Kiddush Hashem. Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Weitzbisk uh, writes that the madrega of the true zealot is that he never feels any lack of material things. He realizes that everything is from Hashem and that this and that in this context, the whole concept of lack is simply inappropriate. What breaks his heart is the kilu Hashem that exists in the world as a result of human action and the fact that the glorious Shekinah of God is in exile. He cannot bear to see how limited God's influence seems to be in the world. The Zadik who sees this constantly prays and begs that God's name will be sanctified once more and that all obscurity will be removed. He does not even consider praying for his own material needs because these count as nothing in his eyes compared with the immensity of his pain over the exile of the Shekinah. This is the person who, if he sees the opportunity to right some terrible wrong, will stride forward and act with zeal for the honor of Hashem. It is not anger that moves him, but an influx of power from Hashem. As Rashi puts it, he takes upon himself the anger which God himself should have vented. His anger is God's anger. That is, it is completely for God's sake with no thought or hint of personal motives. This is the true zealot. Exactly what Rabbi Foreman was bringing out regarding what is a true zealot. Amen. And sources quoted are Bamibar 25.2. And then the location was cited from uh, Menachem Mendel Weitzbisk. And uh, Ibid 209A. Priha Aretz Parashat Pinkus. And then... 
the fifth source. I'm little, trying to locate where it was quoted at. Number four. Yeah, it looks on 2511. I don't think I'm familiar with that one. Rukasha? Tabbing it. <laughs> well, there you go, man. It just. Rukasha? Amen. Well, may. Rabono Shalom, help us with these three weeks, and may the ultimate consolation be granted to us speedily in our days. May we act in Hashem's zeal with no thought of ourselves and our material needs. Amen. All right, you got your bracha? I thank you, Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established my portion with idlers, for I rise early and they arise early. I rise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. I toil and they toil. I toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come. And they run to the pit of destruction, as it is written. And you, O oh God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet, Vechaye Olam Nata Betokenu, Baruch Ata Aronai, Notain Ha Torah. Amen. Baruch Haba Beshem Adonai. <laughs>